Hi there, you're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. In our last episode, we covered the Battle of Issus and the destruction of the city of Tyre. While Darius III was out in the east recovering from his losses, Alexander sought to continue his journey south from Syria and Phoenicia into Egypt. Having left the ruins of Tyre in the autumn of 332 BC, Alexander marched towards the city of Gaza, which was under control of a Persian-installed eunuch named Batis, who stockpiled enough food and mercenaries to hold the citadel. The city itself was also heavily fortified, and in a well-placed elevated defensive position, ridiculous to the point that the engineering corps of Alexander explained to the king that it would make no sense to take Gaza by force. Now, if we have learned anything, telling Alexander something is impossible only will make him more eager to do it. So, he ordered a mound to be raised to allow the siege engines to be properly placed. Taking auspices before the attacking the walls, Alexander prepared a sacrificial animal. But before he could make the offering, a bird of prey dropped a small stone on the king's shoulder. Yet again, this was an omen, interpreted to mean that the king will capture the city, but he should watch out. Watch out for what, you ask? Well, during the heat of battle, Alexander was struck in the shoulder by a rogue catapult projectile. But rather than be dismayed by his wound, he was excited, because that would mean that the rest of the prophecy would must come true. Sappers digging tunnels under the foundation of the walls, and the ensuing artillery barrage eventually caused the collapse of the city's fortifications. The Macedonians swarmed in through the breach, and managed to capture the city. The civilians inside were enslaved, and Quintus Curtius reports a casualty list of some 10,000 souls. Alexander took his revenge on Batis for two months of sieging by having him dragged around behind a chariot, a la Achilles with Hector's corpse in the Iliad. In addition, Alexander took much of the booty and sent it back home to his family, along with 500 talents of frankincense and 100 talents of myrrh to be sent to his former tutor Leonidas, who had once chided a young Alexander for using too much incense in his offering to the gods. And in typical Alexander fashion, he included the message saying, Well, now that I have provided you enough, you need no longer be stingy with the gods. With any opposition at Gaza crushed, Alexander moved from Syria to the path of Egypt. The world of ancient Egypt was old, even by Alexander the Great's time. To put things into perspective, the Great Pyramids and the Monument of the Sphinx were as distant from Alexander as Alexander is to us. Egyptian civilization, as we understand, formed around the blessings of the Nile River, the chief waterway which flooded annually every year, bringing both nutrient-rich silt and freshwater that would flow through the highly elaborate drainage systems to aid in the production of agricultural goods, especially grains like wheat and barley. This system was dependable enough that Egypt would act as the breadbasket for much of the Mediterranean world, especially during the Roman Empire, until climate change in the period of late antiquity would reduce the reliability of the flooding. Accumulated rules stretched back to the conquests of Cambyses in 525 BC, but Persian control was never very stable in the region. The native Egyptians were very resentful of Persian domination and instigated several rebellions before successfully throwing off the Persian yoke in an uprising in 404 BC. 
with an independence lasting some 60 years before being reincorporated into the empire by Artaxerxes II in 343 BC. Tension still existed due to inept governorship and religious abuses, and another uprising in 339 left part of the country under control of rebel forces. In the meantime, the ancient Greeks had reverence for the age and wealth of the Egyptians, particularly Herodotus, who expressed the typical Greek viewpoint that the gods of Greece had at one point fled to Egypt in the distant past, taking the form of animal-headed gods like Osiris and Amun-Ra as disguises. So, naturally, when Alexander visited Egypt, he wished to take advantage of the wealth, grain, and dissatisfaction of Persian rule. So with this in mind, we turn back to Alexander, who had made a six-day journey from Gaza to the port city of Pelusium, located on the easternmost portion of the Nile Delta, a series of seven distributaries leading from the main Nile River out to the Mediterranean Sea. Meeting no resistance, the local satraps surrendered the city to Alexander. The Basileos managed to make his way south to the mouth of the Nile, receiving the city of Heliopolis and Memphis. In an act of piety, Alexander offered sacrifices to the local gods, in particular to the bull god Apis. Sacrificing to Apis was a clever move for two reasons. One, if you're in a foreign land, you probably want to keep the auspices favorable by appealing to those foreign gods, even if, in your mind, it's just Greek gods with Egyptian costumes. And two, this was a political gesture, leveraging on Egyptian hostility to Persian rule. Since the last time a Persian king had anything to do with the local gods, a barbecue of the sacred animals of Apis took place, something the Egyptians were particularly peeved at. Doing this was Alexander indicating that he was not going to rule as a tyrant over the local populations, or, at the very least, make an effort to appear like he wouldn't. This is also the beginning of a trend that Alexander would be both praised and criticized for by contemporaries and classical authors. The further Alexander's conquests go, the more he adopts an imperial attitude versus an attitude of being strictly a Macedonian king. And to try to appeal to his diverse subjects, he would adopt regional customs as a way to bridge the gap between him and the subject native populations. The bulk of his criticisms would be leveled at his more Persian adoptions, but this appeal to Egyptian sensibilities would be a benign hint of things to come. Taking his leave from Memphis, he traveled northwest by the westernmost portion of the delta and the shores of Lake Mariotis. Having arrived at the shores, Alexander was struck by the beauty and the hospitable nature of the area, and thought it would be the location fit for a great city. Never one to shy away from expanding his own glory, Alexander was seized with the ambition to found a city right on the spot. Lacking any sort of chalk or powder, barley was used instead in order to mark the boundaries of the city's grid. A flock of birds then descended upon the barley and ravenously consumed it. And although Alexander was initially concerned, his seers told him that it would mean the city would be bountiful and prosperous in his goods in the future. In effect, they were right. The city, one of 70 other sites to be named after the king, would be prosperous. For the next millennia, Alexandria, what the city will be called, would be one of the crown jewels of the Mediterranean, capital of the Ptolemaic dynasty, and capital of Roman and Byzantine Egypt, until the arrival of the armies of Islam in the 7th century AD. 
Having ordered this task to be completed, Alexander felt yet another compulsion. To the far south, along a perilous journey, lay the Temple of Amon, located in a great oasis called Siwa, and in it resided a famed oracle. Amon, known to the Egyptians as Amun-Ra, was equated by the Greeks to Zeus for centuries, and the oracle was thus highly revered and respected in a similar fashion to the oracle of Delphi. Some modern scholars have thought that making this arduous journey was a way to solidify his title as Pharaoh of Egypt. But historians like Andrew Collins argue that the main purpose of the visit was to seek validation for one biting question in Alexander's mind, his divine heritage and origins. I mentioned in an earlier episode all of the various stories of the alleged union between Olympias and some god, taking the form of snakes or thunderbolts, right before Alexander's conception. These stories were likely circulated by Olympias herself, particularly after the nasty falling out between her and Philip, but Alexander probably had legitimate questions about this. The nature of the divine and man weren't as clear-cut in Hellenic mentality, and stories were abound that performance of great deeds could elevate heroes to the realm of the gods. With ancestors like Achilles on his mother's side and Heracles on the Argead side of Philip, it only reinforced the notion of Alexander's desires for greatness and to achieve a form of immortality or divinity upon his death. In some sense, Alexander was also self-aware about his mortal nature, and although he would try to emphasize his divine side towards the various non-Greeks he ruled, people more accepting of god-kings and the like, he was more restrained with the Greeks and Macedonians under his command, and never pressed too hard on the matter, even if rumors abound with the potential conspiracy against Callisthenes later on in the campaign. Plutarch has an anecdote where Alexander, upon receiving an arrow wound, made a joke. What you see flowing, my friends, is blood, and not ichor which flows in the veins of the blessed gods. In another instance, a crack of thunder and lightning was seen and heard, whereupon one of the court sycophants asked Alexander if he could repeat the act of Zeus, to which Alex replied that he could, but he didn't want to scare his friends. So with this in mind, he and a number of companions, including Ptolemy, had marched southwest about 600 miles, with little water available and miles of uninhabited wasteland separating them. The group was lucky enough to receive a large rainfall sometime during the trip, and when they were lost among the sands, two ravens, or two snakes, depending on the version you choose, managed to show them the way to the oasis, where a local spring of cold water which supplied the area with fertility had awaited them. Having reached the temple, outside a priest of Ammon welcomed Alexander into the building. He then approached the oracle inside, and asked if all of his father's murderers had been punished. He was given a curious response, where the priest told him to rephrase his question more carefully. It was changed to, have the murders of Philip been punished? And the priest confirmed that Philip's death had indeed been revenged. Although I don't believe that Alexander had a hand in Philip's death, this response was rather convenient in order to clear his name of any potential accusations of patricide. In addition, Alexander inquired about his chances of victory and of conquering the world, and he was given a satisfactory response, and thus he donated large amounts of gold and offerings to the temple. 
It is also said that Alexander had a few questions with answers he sought to keep private between himself and his mother only. This visit to the oracle likely made a deep impression on the Basileos, and there may be a hint of truth, despite my earlier comments about his self-awareness of his human nature, that this probably inflated his sense of self considerably. Asking him to change my father to Philip in the question clearly insinuated to Alexander that Zeus Amon was indeed his father. Returning back to Memphis, Alexander sought to make administrative adjustments and solidify his rule over Egypt. He appointed multiple satraps, both Macedonian and Egyptian, apparently not wanting one man to hold power over the entire region. Given the wealth, resources, and location of the satrapy, it would be quite easy to start a rebellion, something later noted by the Roman Emperor Augustus, who had also prevented higher-ranking senators from governing the region. While in Memphis, Alexander received reports of the activities of King Agis III of Sparta. Agis had been stirring in Greece since Alexander crossed the Hellespont, waiting for the opportune moment to strike. After receiving money and mercenaries by way of Persian funding, he had captured much of Crete. In the meantime, Antipater, the regent left behind by Alexander to govern Macedon, was kept distracted by a Thracian revolt. And when word of Agis's revolt reached him as well, he moved out with an army. At Megalopolis in Greece, Antipater met Agis on the field of battle, where the Spartan king was slain and the revolt was crushed. Perhaps as a gesture to reaffirm their goodwill, the rest of the League of Corinth ordered a golden wreath to be sent to the Basileos in order to commemorate his victories in Phoenicia and Syria. Licking his wounds after his previous defeat two years prior, Darius had been gathering a vast horde of arms and soldiers, even larger than the army he commanded against Alexander at Issus, and Alexander himself was desperate to bring the war to a close. Alex made an unopposed crossing across the Euphrates River into Mesopotamia in, the, in August of 331, and some of his scouts had managed to capture and interrogate several of the great king's men, who all gave the same response. Darius was situated near the town of Arbella, at Gaugamela, along the northern half of the Tigris River. With this information, Alex marched his army across the Tigris with no opposition, and reached Arbella by late September. Alexander was located some four miles from Darius' camp, when he convened with his officers, and on recommendation by Permenian, he ordered the men to set up their encampment, while he himself would inspect the battlefield. Upon returning back to camp, Alexander approached his men. The king spoke about how he was not needed to inspire his men, that their own record in battle proved their bravery, that they should also be aware that this victory wouldn't be for a mere satrapy like Syria or Phoenicia. It would be for all of Asia. To the victors, the spoils of empire. In his council, Parmenian advised the king that they should attack that night to take the Persians by surprise, seeing their numbers to be reduced by to chaos. Alexander refused, claiming he would not steal victory, and that it would be hollow and not psychologically crushing to Darius, and so the Macedonians rested for the night. The location of what would be known as the Battle of Gaugamela, less popularly called the Battle of Arbella, was a flat and open plain in modern Iraq. Darius, learning from his mistakes by engaging the enemy on less favorable terrain, had sought to take full advantage of his numbers and cavalry forces. At the same time, though, 
it is interesting that Darius had never attempted to try and disrupt Alexander's movements, or the famously huge baggage train that trailed the Macedonian army. Darius has been criticized by authors for also not using the Tigris to mount a steady defense to prevent Alexander from reaching him at all. The classical authors also love to point out that Darius also had the land leveled by the drivers of horses, purportedly to allow for more effective deployment on the most flashy of Near Eastern weapons, the scythe chariot. Scythe chariots are quite scary sounding and have a certain glamour to them, but they're really not that effective. But it's a common motif to point it out for that cool factor. As I mentioned before, the forces of Darius were enormous. Arian lists a collection of some 1 million infantry and 40,000 cavalry, most scholars suggesting about 100,000 men in its entirety, which is still substantially larger than the 46 to 47,000 Macedonian troops. Included are Bactrian cavalry, some of the finest in all of the east, horse archers from the steppes, Indian soldiers, the famous Persian Immortals, also known as the Great King's Apple Bearers, referring to the round counterweight on the butt of their spears that resembled an apple. There was also 200 scythe chariots, and, curiously, 15 war elephants. Though this marks their first appearance in a battle of western forces, the elephants will be left on the sidelines, and don't take part in the engagement. What a bummer. At dawn, Parmenian and the officers, surprised at the abnormally late absence of Alexander, approached the tent and found the king sleeping rather peacefully. Slightly annoyed by this, Parmenian asked how on earth could he be so relaxed at a time like this, to which Alexander smiled and claimed that the battle was already won, supremely confident in whatever his plans were. Donning a beautiful set of armor, a brilliantly polished steel helmet adorned with jewels, and an ornate cloak gifted to him by the people of Rhodes, he was prepared for war. Mounting Bucephalus, he gave the order for the battle lines to be drawn. The Persian forces were divided into a front and back line, with Darius sandwiched in the middle to command. On his left flank, the cavalry of Bactrians and Persians were to be commanded by the Persian Bessos, a talented leader and seemingly trustworthy advisor to Darius. Placed along the center were various infantry troops, such as Greek mercenaries, famed apple-bearers, the scythe chariots, and war elephants. The Persian right was commanded by Mazaios, who led another collection of cavalry, and the back line was staffed with a mass of infantry. The Macedonians would take their usual positions. Alexander would lead the right wing of the cavalry, along with Philotus and various light infantry like the Agrianians and Peltists. The center was lined with phalanx battalions, led by Crateros and Perdiccas, among others. The left wing would be guarded by Parmenian, with a phalanx and various allied cavalry forces. Meanwhile, a rear phalanx would remain behind the troops in case of encirclement, an event certainly possible given the large number of Persian forces. The twist to this formation was that Alexander did not have his battle line oriented one-to-one -to, -one to face the Persians straight on. The army was instead turned obliquely at an angle, whose center was aimed at the Persian right flank. With the movements of Alexander, the battle had begun. Alexander led his cavalry to the right, towards the uneven ground to prevent or reduce the use of the Persian chariots. In response, Darius also sent some of his left flank to follow Alexander, to prevent that wing from extending. But these were pushed back by the heavy Macedonian cavalry. Bessos then threw the rest of the large Bactrian forces at Alexander again, 
while the scythe chariots were sent into the Macedonian phalanx. These had little effect, as the phalangites created openings on the signal to allow the chariots pass through harmlessly and be set upon by the shield-bearers and Agrianian light infantry. On the Persian right, Mazaios would lead a cavalry charge against Parmenian and the left wing, putting immense pressure on the Allied cavalry and the Macedonians. Alexander, noticing that a gap in the Persian line had opened up due to it being stretched in an attempt to outflank the Macedonian right, he led his companion cavalry and part of the phalanx in a wedge formation, charging straight at Darius himself. In a repeat of the scene at Issus, the great king turned and fled in terror, with Alexander hot on his tail. The rest of the Macedonian army was not doing as well. Parmenian was just managing to keep control of the left flank. But the chaos of battle and the huge clouds of dust kicked up by the tens of thousands of soldiers had made things difficult. The baggage train of the Macedonians was also being plundered by some of the Indian troops who saw an opportunity to free prisoners of war when Alexander's movements had allowed a gap to form inside the phalanx center. Worried about the state of the army, Parmenians sent a messenger to call King Alexander back to help. The sources say that Alexander did receive it, and he called off his pursuit. But it is more likely that Alexander had never received the message, given the speed and mad drive to capture Darius separating the two. But in any case, Alexander cut off the chase, and Persian cohesion would fall apart upon word of the great king's retreat. Victory belonged to the Macedonians. Among the blood and gore in the sweltering heat of that early autumn day, almost 50,000 Persian dead laid the battlefield. The Macedonians lost somewhere between a few hundred to a few thousand men, and lost over a thousand horses due to the brutality of the cavalry clash. What would be known as the Battle of Gaugamela would be a shining example of Alexander's tactical brilliance, even if it must be tempered by the tactically unwise move of pursuing Darius, and thereby leaving the rest of the army in order to achieve that political victory of subduing any resistance by the great king. The defeat on Darius was crushing, and although the great king was not captured, large-scale Persian resistance was effectively over. In return for the carnage, Alexander had won an empire. In an astronomical tablet found in Babylon, the scribe wrote about the days prior to and immediately after Gaugamela. In it, he gave Alexander the same title as he did Darius just days before, King of the World. Truly, it would be hard not to agree. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I'd like to thank all of my listeners for your support in making the show. Hopefully it's been as much fun for you as it has been for me. If you want to hear more about the Hellenistic Age, please subscribe to me on iTunes or follow me on Twitter at Hellenistic POD. I would also sincerely appreciate if you left me a five-star review on iTunes. It'd be a big help to the show. But until next time, this has been the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>